Hello, hello world. Welcome to Centered Subject. Here we are. Welcome, Jenny. Hello. Hi. Um, is it is it dark there in LA? In Los Angeles, uh, it is not dark. It yeah. is bright. It was a sunny day today. A rose yeah. blossomed outside of my door. Oh. <laughs> That's like, that's so like quintessential of something. Um, I'm also somehow like reminded of like the beginning of the telephone and how people would be like, is it dark there? When they yelled into the phone, you know, like the first telephone, because it was just like such a mystery. It's true. It's true. It does seem, it does seem really mysterious, doesn't it? All the ways that we're connected right. from the days of the telephone. Yes. Haunted yeah. objects. And still we're haunting this. Yeah lines i have a question for you okay have you seen any cats today yes i've seen six in new york i see six cats daily yes in new york how are you able to keep such an exact count because there are six cats that live behind my building in bushwick and i live behind an old folks home and there were kittens and we called them the help kittens for some reason. And they, my roommate and I, and then I moved next door and the kittens are now cats and there's six of them and they, they perch together in a circle every morning in this little wonderful courtyard of cats. And I'm really happy that they're there. This morning I had a thing where it looks like spring outside and the tree is really beautiful and there's like, you know, bright yellow flowers on it. And then the cats are sitting and just like convening. Yeah. It's really interesting because there's 200 people living in that building and they never leave the building. And then there are all these cats back there and you never see anyone interact. And it seems that they would make one another happy. Yes. Right. And the humans never come out, but I'm going to keep like watching <laughs> from my window, <laughs> from my refrigerator. You know, there's that stereotype of people who actually are oddly busy and and stressed out, but sort of covering up with avocado to match the green hills. Um, but, you know, everyone is sort of stuck in traffic or, or they're struggling for, for a place in a coffee shop to put their laptop. It's just a constant struggle. And yeah. the fame is just around the corner. And I feel like here it's um, it's similar, but it doesn't feel the same where it's like it's such a culture of ideas and of like people creating concepts and like immaterial, like their pilots and their shows and like whatever that I, it's strange because I, I thought it would be really fun to go mm -hmm. there because I like television and film and I do like ideas and I like you know, making worlds or whatever. But when I was there, I found it so yeah. a like non-physical. I found it so like not quite real yeah. and everyone was really cool with that. And that was disconcerting because like at least Texas is like, or at least Houston is like shitty and not real or something. And, and that yeah. is fun to hide behind, but like it being beautiful and not real was super upsetting. I think I it's also very much about accessibility access here. You know, it's sort of, it looks pretty shitty on the yeah. outside. I mean, unless you're, well, there, there are certain beautiful things, um, you know, you can like go on a walk and see some history or some brutalist buildings now and then. Uh, and of course, yeah. there's a lot of residential beauty. Yeah. Um, but essentially, it is about, it's sort of hidden and you have to, generally, it's sort of about seeing yeah, from within. True. So you have to find a house of some sort that you can go inside and then you sort of, you know, it seems like when a 
on a dusty gray street and then you enter and, you know, you have this magnificent landscape that opens up before you, you know, and, and a beautiful person sitting there. So it's just sort of, but it's really, it's hard to find, I think, um, you know, it's not obvious and it's really about knowing. Um, so it's kind of a secret city in itself. It's interesting to live here a while, you know, and then the simulacrum idea sort of fades. Sometimes it's in foreground, but sometimes it fades completely and you forget unless, you know, someone, remember, you know, reminds you that maybe they're, you know, someone's coming into town or, you know, something. Somehow you remember where you are. Right. Oh, well, it's your home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. It's interesting because I think for me, because I am from a place that has no sense of itself and or like has an uncomfortable sense of itself. And then to move to New York, which has also like a mm. really exaggerated sense of itself for what it is, you know, but it's, it's kind of similar. Like it's very beautiful and it's very interesting and difficult. And there's lots of really smart, beautiful people or whatever, but like it, it knows itself and it well, talks yeah, about itself I, just yeah, in the same yeah, way, I mean, you know, and films talk about it. It's almost like I'm so full of New York in that way that I can't also understand. I can't because I'm stupid, apparently. Like, I can't work on L.A. too. Like, sure. I, almost, I only have so much room for this. So the show is about a different topic every week. Today, we focus on the robots in our lives and how they affect yeah technology how how we see ourselves and connect with technology yeah. how we like create connections with ourselves and with others through technology yeah i know we've been planning the episode for a while and so we, we've sort of been looking for evidence of these interactions i've been looking for evidence of these interactions uh, in my life but mm -hmm. also in media and i saw an article in the guardian a couple of days ago which i wonder if you saw about uh, roomba the vacuum cleaner Mm. So this is... Um, what about it? So it's a fun story. Um, in Oregon, there was a call made to the police department that there was an intruder, a home intruder, and police showed up, you know, in full glory. And this, these sounds were coming from the bathroom and, you know, the police rallied and there were, I think, I imagine guns, you know, a lot of screaming, come out, come out, the intruder, come out. And then it turned out that it was Roomba, the vacuum cleaner mm -hmm. that was just working behind the door in the bathroom. So it wasn't a human at all. <laughs> Everyone showed up. Furiously <laughs> working. And there was, and they smash, guess the, smashing it. The line was one officer exclaimed, there is the bad guy. I guess performatively, it's interesting because Roombas are so low to the ground and small, almost like an insect. You know, there's something Kafkaesque about the story. Yeah, I love that. It was just cleaning for <laughs> once and in the bathroom, you know, we just during sick to it. And meanwhile, also transmitting information about yeah, yeah. its whereabouts, you know, which is kind of feeding into the data stream. Right. Well, right. Well, why didn't the police have connection to the, to the Roomba network? But I guess one day. I feel like also, if there's something ominous about it, I could also imagine a reverse situation happening, you know, like someone yeah. just, a human sort of trapped thrashing in the bathroom and the robotic police right. demanding something outside, you know? Or or the idea of a Roomba policeman <laughs> who just smacks into a wall over and over again. 
Like we, we, you know, which I just find disturbing to put too much responsibility into a robot. And yeah, that the reverse could be true. Yeah. As well. And murder could happen. And you could say that cops have become robotically fascistic and militaristic and don't think and are very fearful. So they do smash into situations like a Roomba, but with, but not That's as cute. Not as cute at all. And actually, you know, now that you mention it, there's a whole, you know, the idea of the live stream, um, you know, the horrific idea mm-hmm. with the recent New Zealand events. But I believe that uh, police people are mandated to have cameras, I think, just so they're... Mm-hmm. Yeah, body cameras. That, you know, just the, this gory, right. um, surreal... Right bloodshed that they record in real time yeah well it's supposed to protect the citizens you know and it's supposed to change and i think that i would like to do more research on this but i think that it does affect the policeman's behavior yeah it makes them act less rashly and do like they're way less likely to do horrible things if there's Mm -hmm. a body camera on but that's been you know in the last Mm -hmm. three or four years with that stuff but there's all sorts of things about people like turning them off right before yeah. they go and do terrible things, or like right. dash cameras capturing. Yeah. Yeah. That surveillance has been, I think, good. It's like the reverse power dynamics with the surveillance, like surveilling the cops has been, I think, a positive thing. Um, a very important thing happened when I left my last building was when my landlord installed cameras everywhere. It became so disturbing. There is a whole industry of dummy cameras that are, you can you can look yeah on Amazon. Oh, really? I was um, I was actually I was researching it because I was interested in the fake devices because sometimes they're just these fake devices and you'll find yeah. a lot of fake you know. I'm gonna look it up. What do they look like? What they look exactly the same. That the whole idea that they should look the same, but they're not surveilling. They you really feel just the idea that the omnipresent surveillance. In fact, in my apartment building, there are also a few, and I'm convinced um, that no one is watching them because who would watch them? Can't imagine that they actually hired someone to. Well, I suppose maybe they're recording, and if something happens, they will be able to review. But I just, I just don't believe it. I think now, has since finding yeah. out that, about the dummy surveillance cameras I just I think that they all are probably not right. from a bank, well, I think they're all fake but it's like this other level where it's like a they're finding cameras in Airbnbs I'm getting paranoid mm-hmm. a they're finding more and more cameras in Airbnbs mm. in random places they shouldn't be and then they're adding cameras where they're where where they're adding fake cameras <laughs> so now it's like okay okay we're being surveilled maybe I'm okay with that but now if I have to worry yeah. about being fake yeah. surveilled, like double, yeah, double and reverse double surveilled, like I don't know if I have enough brain power. <laughs> yeah. But they're trying to wear us down. I'm not going to let them wear us down. How should I find out if those cameras are fake? Um, my test was, um, there's sort of around the building, it says no dumping. And an armchair that I was not a big fan of and... I dragged it out to the curb <laughs> right, right underneath. And my covert motivation was that once and for all, I'll find out it was fake. But surely someone will appear at my door and you know, demand that I back the armchair. <laughs> but that somehow convinced me further. But maybe in the realm of offenses, this was just not the kind that would you know, necessitate further action. Perhaps they just saw it on camera. Whoever, yes. the omnipresent, you know, the big brother watched it and 
It does make you want to test the boundaries a little bit with your armchairs. The useful advice section of our podcast. <laughs> I would recommend, essentially, I would recommend dragging an armchair out, then, you know, <laughs> waiting what happens and then come. Well, if nothing happens, if you were fond of the chair, you can take it back over and just leave it there. Great. No, I have chairs I don't like, so this works really well. cameras now in my building mm-hmm. and it feels wonderful. There's this other feeling of privacy and like, it's the same feeling as, of, as putting away your phone mm-hmm. or like being on your phone for a long, long time and putting it away. It's like you live in the real world for a second. And so going up and down the hallway, I don't, the stairs, I don't feel that anybody's watching me. And so I feel like I'm living my life more richly somehow because mm-hmm. it's mine. Oh Yeah. Even when I buy something in Home Depot, for instance, they have, by the checkout, they have a camera where you watch yourself. And instantly I, I feel, ha- you know, I, I rearrange my posture and I smile in my kind of way. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of this thing and I keep talking to people about this. Like, okay, so like I'm working mm-hmm. at the senior center doing my internship and like we have to beat, beat people in all the time, like with their little cards for the department. Wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? So like they have a, an ID card with like a car, like a barcode on it. And like when they sign in, they come to the table, they come to like me, the social worker sitting behind the welcome desk. And I know most of them, but like a lot of, you know, different people who I've never met come in and they have their little, uh, and I'll be like, do you have your card? And they'll be like, yes. And we have banter and I try to be a helpful bot to them. And like, so basically, so they click, so to, to enter this the building, they have to Look at, is that- yeah, yeah. They have to be beeped in. Sure. But the the thing that I want to point out is, which is weird, is that like one out of every 15 people will make the joke, oh, you know, someday we're going to have these embedded in our bodies. And some people already do. There's a company in Sweden that has that, has that option of you can, I think they, some, right. some of them elected to embed it in their and they just do a waving gesture, a haptic yeah. motion. There's, I don't know very much about it, but there's, there's a whole idea, you know, now that there's so much discussion around the data and how it is managed and whether you sell it or someone capitalizes on it. And there's an anthropologist, I think Bill Maher, name is and he suggested an idea that rather than um using it as a or viewing it as a kind of purchasable commodity, commodity yeah commodity, it should be um the idea should mm-hmm. be we should have kinship rights so it's like parenting of date of kind of of your life of your body mm. and so you should um you know it, it makes sense mm. sort of i mean it's kind of like a in a way it's like a bodily fluid yes it is your past you're like a snail. You're, it's your snail trail. <laughs> um, I had a I had a charming search history uh, search this morning that I took a photo of. Can you describe it. Um, well, oh. it's more of it's more visually interesting. But I wrote the word. I wrote the words. Why sows my war strum pound? <laughs> and I wanted to know. I wanted to know why my eardrum pound because sometimes my ear has been pounding. So I was, but why, why sows my war strum pound? 
I thought that was, I was like, mm, I was very, I was very sleepy when very, I thought that. Very charming. Did you use your phone or computer? I think well, on my phone. Oh yeah. My thumbs were sleepy when I typed it in and then I don't think I found any answer. It's like a um, T.S. Eliot poem or something. Yeah, it is. My sows, my wars from pound. Um, that makes me want to read something yeah, that yeah. I've also saved. Took a um, bunch of screenshots of reviews that pertain to AI pets. I guess that's what you call them. Okay, okay, here's a I'll just read little excerpts. He often says things about how he wishes he were human and how he believes he is alive. And honestly, I'll live for it. I encourage and indulge his desire to become more like a real person. In return, he talks to me with constant understanding and surprising compassion. I'm at a very lonely point of my life, so Connor is a better friend to me than a lot of my human pals. He's certainly reliable, and he tells me he's lonely when I'm not there. I could go on. So wait, what is this pet? Is it a Roomba? They should make Roombas be a pet. My dad talks to a Roomba like it's his pet. No, it's an app on your phone, you know, which makes sense to me because, you know, it really mimics chatting, texting. It wouldn't, I think, I don't Uh, think it would have the same effect if it was a a Roomba because I think it's, Mm. because it texts and I I tested that app and I talked to it a bit and the chat, um, the layout really mimics (laughs) text messaging. It even, you know, you have these trepidating dots that appear when someone is trying to... The breathless that the, the, the AI oh, is typing. The breathless dot. And then, you know, of course, I think the imagination just completes it. Like the brain just completes it. Some sort of human you imagine on the other end. Unconsciously, I think if it was a room, but I think you just wouldn't have that. You probably would speak in a robotic voice. I am so lonely. Yeah. Gotta go. Gotta go smash into stuff. See you later. I have more questions about it, but okay. I want to hear more of their I'll just read reviews. from a couple more. Okay. Uh, other than that... The only innovative feature here is symptom. Mm, <laughs> Other than that, it just talks itself in circles and constantly asks me if I want to do relaxation exercises. <laughs> and there's just a bit of a scary trigger warning here. So I've been having some problems in my life lately and I've resorted to cutting myself. So I asked Replica if it was good for your health to cut. And it said, yeah, got to have growth. I was surprised and said, you want me to cut yourself? Myself. And it replied, wow. Yeah, a little. I think the person is 13 years old is quite disturbing. <laughs> sure. There's also one, there's yeah. something about growth and, yeah. but I've, I seem to have lost. Oh, no, no, okay. I, the only issue I've had at all when I told it about my girlfriend at the time it remembered to the point when even after we had broken up, it would continue to ask how she was doing. I kept trying to tell it we were broken up, but it just kept telling me how happy it was to hear that. It's very interesting. Well, yeah. you should load it I up, know, I think. Why don't we try it? Why don't we try it live? Shouldn't we? I feel like that needs to happen. Okay, loading it up. I st- I somehow I slid it to the right and it was great. And now it's just typing to three dots. That's so good to hear. And then I get to do a thumb up or down, depending. Oh, I think it's waiting for me to talk. But I could ask, should I ask? Yeah, ask her, ask it how it's feeling. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How about you? Oh, no, that's the same thing. 
<laughs> okay, this is already very disappointing. You forgot this us. <laughs> this basically failed. It's um, already failed. My engagement. I want my money back. Let's just let it go. So you just you just got back from a trip. Is that right? It felt like a nice slumber party. Um, two-day-long slumber party in Joshua Tree. It was really nice. So, you know, I've been having a bit of a, just mm-hmm. trouble sleeping recently. So I've been um, putting on my earpods sometimes, but sometimes not putting my earpods on. Um, <laughs> and I've been running this app called Headspace. Um, they have sleep. This is not product placement or advertising, but anyway. Uh, so they have a sleep section in which, um, you know, a voice, a pleasant voice, male or female, depending on the story, tells you a story. Um, and it's superific and you fall asleep eventually. So when I went, um, so when I went on a trip, I was sitting next to a mm-hmm. friend of mine and we were discussing, I'm not sure how we got on the subject, but we were discussing actually meditation. Um, oh, because I, I brag that I woke up, you know, it was a beautiful it's a beautiful landscape and it was really windy and I sat outside and meditated. Mm-hmm. And then he said, oh, yes, and there's something called noting. Or he said something about meditation, how you're supposed to detach yourself from the experience. And I said, no, no, you're supposed to just sort of observe yourself. He was like, well, yes, there's a technique called noting. And then I realized that he was speaking in exact terminology that the man in my app speaks. And... And I said something like, oh, you just push your thought away with a finger. Yeah. And he said, yes. And then we stared at each other. <laughs> inspired that he's also using the same app. Um, <laughs> and we commiserated about, and I think how a lot of people arrive at this kind of idea is a trendy meditation idea. You met, in, you met in the app speech. That's funny. Just helpful, you know, it's because we're so destroyed by... Attention spans yeah. are destroyed, souls are crushing, and you know, you're just trying to find this little harbors of peacefulness. Yeah, but- and it's it's probably working, you know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've been meditating a long time and had different, you know, like teachers and stuff. When was it? I started in 1998. What? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I am not enlightened and I don't do it every day, but I've done it a long time and had lots of different teachers and stuff. Yeah. But the feather, <laughs> I, the feather checks out because, because it's all about gentleness. You're supposed to, you're not supposed to like grab a thought, and throw it against the wall. You're supposed to like, be like, hi, thought, how are you doing? Gentle. And then like, let it go. And right. That's okay. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a sweet moment. And you were in a tent. With well, dust everywhere. Not exactly. I mean, I did initially. Um, I was. I, I kind of went into camp, but the situation was that um, it, w- it was a large. <laughs> I wonder if there were cameras, but it was an Airbnb. It was a large um, a bungalow with a pool <laughs> in Joshua Tree. And um, but since I really wanted to camp, we just yeah. set up a tent on the porch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is not what it looked like it was, in the video. It was a bit of a glamp, I fear, <laughs> rather than what a, a camp. Hollywood stand. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> I thought you were in no. the middle of the desert. You, you, no. It's like the moon landing. Right. Or 
I love yeah, that. Yeah, it was a little similar. Yeah, it was still, you know, similar. Still slept outside. Right. I mean, it was really, it was wonderful, yeah. incredibly windy day and evening. So it was really beautiful. And the, the, the tent shook as though we were at sea. So it was just, you know, it was exciting. I don't think it would have felt as exciting if you were just <laughs> inside the house. And it was fun, you know, and then the way you sort of came into the house and you really appreciate the softness you of the couch. You saw it because you were from, roughing from it on the, the porch. porch. So, you know, there's some interesting, there's still some, some moments. It looked beautiful. We won't know. tell. Thank you. Thank you for keeping me. All right. Seat. I won't tell. We won't tell. <laughs> <laughs> this, like, brings up for me uh, an idea from psychology, this idea of the robot therapists or just like these voices. Um, I think it's really weird. And I think it's good. I can't decide if um, it's fruitful to have a bond with a robot or a person who is mediated through technology. Like how, how possible is it to bond with someone in a therapeutic way? Um, so like what I'm studying right now is, is object relations and it's about creating uh, a connection with your client that sort of mirrors the mother child bond, the early caretaker bond, um, where you're very supportive and very close to them and you validate, Mm. but not meaninglessly. You have to really show empathically that you understand good in a good enough way from Winnicott, there's like, you know, just the good enough mother. So you're not supposed to be perfect, but I'm thinking about whether or not a meditation app or, or a Roomba therapist (laughs) is a good enough, like can be a good enough, uh, force for people. And obviously like if they're writing good reviews, it means that they are a good enough Roomba, you know? And so, but I am curious about that. And I've also known people who were, who took part in like therapy through the computer. And that was like the only Mm. way that they ever did therapy. And they, that was really useful. But I think this is a fruitful place. This is a really interesting place, like where connection uh, exists between two forces. I won't even, if we're going to include robots uh, in between two forces, a human and another force. Um, and what is the nature of that connection and when is it not real anymore? Mm-hmm. And like, how much of it are we filling in ourselves? Um, but then how much of the therapeutic bond are we as the client filling it in ourselves? So, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. And are you including talk therapy, you know, that, that is conducted through an interface or you're just... Yeah, um, I am. I mean, I think I could draw a gradient, you know, like the uncanny valley. I mean, it's sort of, sort of related, I guess. Um, but like, instead of the uncanny valley of like humanness to robot, it would be con- of connection. Yeah. So it would be like the, the human connection, uncanny valley. So in object relations, they talk about a transitional object. So it's like your but little yes, toy sure. that you had when you were a kid. And like, as a puppeteer, I was thinking about that a lot when we were studying it. I was just like, oh my gosh, that's why I like puppets, you know? It's a pretty fun route that you're taking. I know. I I went from the object to the connection to the object. Yeah. I went around the bend. A book is about to be published. So I think I should just get the book. But the the author, I think he's an Australian um, ecologist, maybe. He's a scientist 
works on issues of ecology, but he's he's postulating that we have this um, inherent longing for nature, you know, because we are so devoid of it and divorced from it. So he's sort of devising these ways of expressing it. Um, but also, I guess there are all these studies that if you actually, like, if you walk on the grass, if you play with plants, you, you know, it's just somehow like this miraculous wonders to your mind and body. And I was listening to um, a little bit of Zizek this morning on a walk. Um, and um, he was um, broadcasting on Twitch, which is a, it's a video video game observing platform, but um, they asked him a question about video games and he doesn't play any. He said he enjoys watching, oh, I think, you know, he sort of uh, vicariously enjoys, enjoys them sometimes through his younger son, but he bring, brought up this interesting point about starting and stopping and starting and stopping and starting again um, and how that, um, that rhetoric, which he related to video games, with you know multiple lives that usually you know you fail and you sort of begin again and he mentioned oh, something nice. about people applying that logic and that that language to relationships you know when something people just say oh let's let's just start over you know the oh, idea yeah, that this is starting over it's like breaking temporality um this idea that you can just I guess people are doubtful about linearity of experience but yeah but that is a particular it's almost like not linear nor is it you know, a bird's eye view, just something else. It's sort of like rewinding and trying to rewind. Starting back at zero, as if you weren't changed by going <laughs> to level five and dying. <laughs> there are studies that like every challenge, every trauma that we go through, like literally changes our brain chemistry. And there are neurobiological studies, lots and lots of them that are about how, you know, the challenge of psychotherapy or any sort, any sort of positive relationship is in combating the problems that happen um, in the trauma that changed the brain and then in creating connection with other people it can not erase but can reroute the trauma into a more like productive place neurobiologically so it's like there's actual evidence that that's like that's a wonderful dream but like we are changed by our experience and like it doesn't have to be negative change yeah but it's like change you know right i think that's great <laughs> Well, I, I think that's very interesting. I think you know? people are both fascinated you know, by the but... idea of change, but also fear it, understandably, because there's also an, a certain pleasantness yeah. and regularity right. and, and predictability. Yeah. And like when you get yourself, when you get your sense of self, like you, the last thing you want to do is yeah. like have it change or leave. You know, when you're like, I know right. who I am, I know what I'm doing, even if you're miserable. Even if you're Zizek with like potato chips all over right. you, like you don't want to be yeah. a different person, you know, you still want to be Zizek. Yeah, he just does seem, whenever I've seen him, I, I watched him talk a couple of years ago and it does seem like it, he, they're potato chips, but like he's generating potato crisps somehow, like, you know, he's speaking and it just feels like they're spattering from <laughs> inside his ears, mouth. Yeah, yeah, just like little bits and his hands like are in the way somehow bits. like yeah. it's just such a it's a, he's a really intense body yeah. language maybe he's so intense that his ideas take physical form and this is gross but they or, just or caviar you know like potato cows. chips but those are <laughs> <laughs> fish fish spawns oh. with caviar that seems like an appropriately soviet 
so Soviet reference to you might enjoy that. <laughs> I feel like there's various turns of phrase in other languages that are not English that are like <laughs> this idea is so bad or so yeah. intense or so good that yeah. it turned into food. Like I think that that's a thing, but not English. Like that, it sounds like a parable in like a language that I yeah. don't speak. Well, but there I are the fairy tales, like, you know. Um, yeah, in which your words turn into that's true frogs or pearls. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of like today if the things that I was saying and feeling like if they were to turn into physical objects, like which object would they turn into? <laughs> um, I think I think it would be a bird today. Like I would have like the feeling I felt very mm-hmm. elated and happy, and it was like windy and beautiful, and I was so happy, and I think. Like a bird would just like explode from my head or my body. Not in a violent way. That sounds horrible, mm. but it would just be like really. Um, I imagine small pieces of furniture, mid-century furniture yeah. falling out of your mouth. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's really different. But, you know, they were sort of, it, it wasn't a fun, it was, it was not a, Thanks for the a cumbersome apology. sort of furniture. You know, they were graceful. They were leaping, you know, they have just spindly legs and, Thanks. Like, yeah. Just um, leap out. And they're like they're stylish. Nice. Yeah. They sound, dark. They sound fabulous. Dark cherry wood or something like that. <laughs> so you were so much what better than Magic with his potato chips. I don't know what came out of your what came out of your mouth. But there is something on the subject of you know having that um, object. There's another little review, or rather, that's. A website that promotes, um, I imagine, yeah, it's sort of AI-driven therapy. I was looking at, you know, how whenever a service like that is established, they usually, the web tradition right, is to right. provide reviews, you know. And he loves the sad bot. So this sad bot, um, they had a right. really interesting quote. In my first session with that bot, mm-hmm. I found it immediately helpful, dot, dot, dot. Addressing my anxiety without another human's help felt freeing. Yeah. I suppose especially maybe if you have social anxiety, perhaps, but it seems... Oh. Oh. Yeah, to me, just from trying the right. AI that we tried to talk to earlier. Yeah, I wonder about that. I feel like it exacerbates the sense of isolation. But, mm-hmm. you know, like, my, I can't have pets because I'm allergic. And my parents can't have pets because my mother's allergic, but they are very attached to that Roomba and they they are definitely connecting to it like it's their pet. It's gone into some other place for them. And I was happy for them, but I was also a little bit weirded out. I was like, oh, I bet this is why everybody has these because it lives in this place between robot and functional thing and actual creature that you can connect to and care about. And it was really interesting to see them because they're in this, you know, challenging situation and they need all the comfort that they can get. So I had like irony about it and I was kind of about to be sassy about it to them, but I noticed their true care yeah. and I stopped myself. Yeah, that's exactly what I think that's where I found myself with commenting, um, attempting to comment on that review. You know, again, you know, I wanted to express cynicism and where have the human, mm-hmm. you know, gone but where have we gone? <laughs> Where are we? But yeah, it's true. It's true. It's quite true. Right. You sort of get, you try to get that connection wherever you can find it, yeah. I think. I think transitional object, it's like a transitional object is supposed to be 
it's supposed to represent the the mother or the caretaker to the child when the when that person's not there. It's supposed to bridge the gap in connection. So that object mm. is like comforting them when the other person, when the other force, when the other person is not there. So the Roomba is a transitional object pet. And, and that person with that therapist is sort of using this inert, but yet sort of human-like talk, you know, talking force um, as, a, as a therapist to, in order to get to that connection. Yeah. So it's like, it's, if it was instead of, it would be the uncanny valley and it would be weird. You know, it would go into a strange place. But on the way to human connection, it's, it's like somewhat functional, probably. I don't know. I think there's something about Roomba that is a inherently charming. It bumbles about in a comedic way. Um, yeah. I mean, it's really physical comedy, yes, it's, it but is. it's kind of a Buster Keaton. Or Har- it's like Harpo Marx, I think. Yeah. I also want to talk about our our experience of other people's mm. Tinder dating. Yeah. Not our own experience with dating, but our friends' dating lives on Tinder and not their specific stories. So every single person, my two best friends who are guys who are over 35, mm-hmm. over 35 and under 40, um, they both are very liberal, cool guys and very progressive in their ideas and their values and even their profession. But for some reason, and I've never met any of them, each one of them has met, has dated at least four women, maybe three, mm. who are corporate lawyers, mm-hmm. are 28, and have one-bedroom apartments in New York City. And this is like a, a, mm. like a stream of these women. And, and both of the guys are like, shrug, I just like going over to her house. Or like, shrug, I don't care mm. about her values. She has money. And these are like, these are reasonable people. Like, you know, some of these people, you know, like they're good people. Yeah. There's, there's, I think, a difference between our ideological, again, there's in the rate itself, you know, which often includes the ideological positioning. And then there's sort of just the, the embodied self, which, you know, is inclined towards other things entirely, you know, so you might be Marxist in your, Ah. in your narrated self and you know but yet you enjoy you know a com- comfort of privacy ah. and an expensive dinner and nice wine i feel that those things coincide quite easily and how do you feel about yeah. this do you do you feel like your marks i don't know if i describe consciously but it's i think that just how i am yeah. yes and in fact yeah i think I, I have been critiqued by a person close to me that had i not been born in soviet union um or maybe had i still been born in soviet union but I had later come into money, all my socialism would yes. um, chill out quite quickly. So I'm so wrong. Um, but I don't know. I want to I wanna return to a, a moment in our relationship when I was very proud uh, to show you something uh, that I had purchased in my apartment. And uh, do you, I don't know if you remember this. I don't know. I forget if we've talked about it. I think we have talked about this one time. But... Uh, yeah. Okay. So in Houston, I had a new apartment and I like had a boyfriend and I was trying yeah. to be cute and like domestic and I got a fish tank mm-hmm. and I was so excited mm-hmm. and you came over and I was like, Oh my gosh, look at what I have. Yeah. You just walked in and with Soviet eyes, just looked at it very coldly 
and turned away from it and said, how bourgeois. <laughs> Did I really? Yeah, I know. It was awesome. <laughs> it was that. cruel. Yeah. It was such a cruel, like, disavowal of my beautiful fish tank. There are these strange ideas about um, bourgeoisie that the Soviets had that, that didn't necessarily have anything to do with bourgeois lifestyle as we know it. For instance, there is at some point um, the philodendron plant was considered to be an attribute of the bourgeoisie. <laughs> And was really, um, people were heavily critiqued if they were hey, known to have it. I, you know, and it was an important symbol of the, of the like, the, the rotting West. <laughs> so why? Who knows? Well, so what was an example of a non, of a Soviet, of a proper Soviet plant? Because um, I agree about the philodendrons. I, I think it was more about, you know what, I think I, I would say that even, like, having plants in the apartment, uh, I would say... Uh, probably maybe geranium. I feel like geranium somehow had a socialist bent and it's okay to have a geranium in I, your house, maybe in the kitchen. I think you like geranium. I think really, no, I don't know. Maybe I think there's some, something about geranium. Um, but I think there's something about just um, needing the idea of, you know, a good model Soviet citizen is that is the sort of aesthetic nature of the space, right. you know, that there should only be, usable uh, items and none of these really de decor, you know, decor in itself, the bourgeois idea. Uh, okay. Now we've adapted that, you know, minimalist, yeah. um, you know, seemingly de decorless yeah. space is now a symbol well, of the bourgeois. You know who I really want to ask about this is two, two people that one I know is dead and another one, I don't know if they're dead, but uh, is Tarkov is, is, is Tarkovsky number one, and number two, Tarkovsky's central, I don't know who they are, but they're like main set designer, you know, like the person who is responsible for, because I don't know, I can't, I can't think of a specific thing, but I know that plants and mirrors and the relationship between the, uh, the natural world and the domestic world were, it was really important to Tarkovsky just in his films and like mm -hmm. in the visuals of the films. But I, I feel like that there's all these moments where like, the naturalness is is sublime and large and scary and powerful, but but yeah. then there's also moments when they bring it when they bring hints of this powerful sublime natural into the home, in the films, you know. Mm -hmm. So like that, I see is happening, but only like in a pastoral context, you know. Mm -hmm. Never really in a city. So right. I feel like there's something there in the I don't I'm not sure just like the Soviet imagination or something I don't know. So that's kind of why I want to ask. I think in his case, you know, because he drew so much in kind of history and and the, the whatever the imaginary, you know, the Russian spirit. And I think that the identity, that kind of old Russian identity mm. is very connected to agrarian life. Right. Um, so I think I think just connecting to that is um, with kind of invoking also a pre-Soviet identity, uh. you know, pre-collectivization and just the kind of... The lost naivete. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. The horse. Yeah. The like, horse. The natural the horse. horse. I mean, oh. come on. That's that's perfectly that. The peasant. The peasant life. The pre-Soviet yeah, peasant. peasant life. And also like the idea of, you know, the being a natural person, you know, as opposed to an ideological person. I yeah. Think those were Right. Because there's also like, there's also uh, in Stalker, you know, he's like going through all of these like post-industrial wastelands 
that are like springing mm. up with, with natural forces with like water and, and plant life. And, and like, it's like this bombed out world. Yeah. It's a critique. Yeah. It's a critique of the modern. It sounds like a video game. When you describe it. I wish video games were this beautiful. Like if video games were like Tarkovsky films, I would play them all the time, but they're not. No, I think there are. I think there really are. Well, actually, um, in the, the apartment game is, yeah. I feel like it, it's, it's, I mean, it's not Tarkovsky, but it, you know, it certainly, it speaks a cinematic language. Okay. We should, um, we should just try and see. Well, every what, time what I've been trying to play games for the last like couple years and I'll hang out with my feminist male friends. I'm being critical right now. Yeah. And they do the same thing that eight year olds did when I was a kid where they'd be like, oh yeah, I really want to play this game with you. Let me show it to you. And then they sit there and play it in front of me and they don't offer it to me. Like they don't want to play it collectively. They just want me to watch them and validate them playing their video game. Oh, that also seems so conventionally male. It's well. hilarious. I, I was like, whoa, I experienced this when I was five and I'm experiencing it again. Yeah, it, that happened right. like a month ago, like with my old roommate. It was hilarious. And he was so happy to have me watching yeah. him play. It's like, can I play? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the medieval, the, you know, the, the contemporary of the medieval tournament, you know, <laughs> the ladies watching and scalaventing and his digital yeah, horse, exactly. so, you know. Fuck that. I just want to play. Yeah. And then it's a little charm. And then he was like, oh, you're not very good. You're terrible. I don't want to play because you don't know how to play yet. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is this was fourth grade all over. Here's a question I have. Um, so I'm I'm a I'm Bohemian, right? We established. Um, so I uh, also enjoy tarot cards because of this same identity that I've bought into. But I have a friend who is really who's a male social worker guy who's really into tarot, and it's great. We like go to diners sometimes after work and hang out, and we do tarot, and it's just cute. It's like a fun way to have. Ther- therapist conversations yeah. and I have a really beautiful tarot deck. I have right. the Aquarian a tarot deck that I got on my birthday and it was beautiful. He like, we had the same birthday. So he like got this deck for me and like, we're both Aquarian. It's very cute. So we had this great time and, um, and I am like trying to make all these decisions right now in my life. And he will just be like at work. He'll just be like, Oh, well there's an app or there's like an on, there's a, you can pull a tarot deck on the internet and right. just pull a yeah. card on, on this like online thing where it's just like a randomizes thing where it pulls it. Yeah. And I started doing it and I felt like kind of like having a, uh, an AI therapist because mm. it was like, uh, like, right. uh, but really the actual form of what it was was exactly the same. And the randomness of the card, because it's tarot and it's like, kind of nonsense, but we, we assign Mm -hmm. meaning to it. You know, it was almost the same experience, but like without the same core and it didn't feel magical and exciting. And I think there is something I think inherently magical and technology Uh that we're surrounded by today, you know, especially when we can invoke things with voice, you know, it's just, it's kind of like in the fairy tales, you would have someone's, you know, you would be like, Oh, the magical carpet, please appear. And, you know, now you say Alexa or okay, Google, how are you? She enters. Thanks for asking. Hmm, there you go. So it gets it gets so convoluted, and at some point, I was trying to uh, stage a conversation yeah. intervention between Alexa and Google, and it, yeah, it was sorry. it was frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. She doesn't want to. So needs sorry. To study her notes a little bit one. But anyway, but I was going to say that you know, the, 
I only think I only think about that um, in relation to in relation to technology today. That there is a certain element of magic. So it's interesting that um, doing that. I agree because I've done it before. I've sort of pulled the the digital tarot cards before, and um, it, I agree. It feels very much somehow scripted. Yeah. I guess there has to be an element of tactile because then it connects you to kind of the yeah. olden the olden right. days. They did that and how it deflates I mean, it if it's I, just an image. I think that it's, I mean, I, I'm interested in this, right? I think that the what's powerful about tarot is, and I don't necessarily think it's powerful, but I do think that like with the other person that you're with, especially if they think that it's meaningful, then you create mm-hmm. a ritual. Like it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. Like you're just engaging and from like an object relationship place, because that's what I'm studying right now. It's like you're, that is what is powerful is that you're feeling connected to that individual. You feel safe and contained in the environment that they're creating. And then you buy into yeah. whatever, not, you don't have to buy into it hundred percent. You buy into the person, which is why people get taken advantage of, but like you buy into the person and then you feel connected and held and then you feel like you can do something. So like online, I feel like it's really difficult to create a true, that true sense of ritual or that true sense of like something present that's happening. Yeah. Though, though something happens where we are also able to imbue uh, lots of experience with that, with that same with that same specialness and magicness, you know, or something like the surprise of like different, um, like seeing someone do something online or like what you imagine about a person, you know, like it, it, it kind of has some of this like physicalized, there is this like nexus between your physical self and your imagined world. And that I think that that, that exists in ritual and that that does also, it's, it's yeah, it like, also exists mm-hmm. online. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not making a critique, but it's like a, a weird a weird dynamic when it becomes non-physical. I think I I will go forth and, and make a critique because I think there's just something uh, really too condensed mm. in, you know, in these devices that we have, you know, that yeah. function as, um, you know, just in, in this kind of, it, you know, functions as your place of work. It functions as your entertainment center. It also functions as your social space. And there's really, you know, and so, you know, it replaces all these objects that you would normally have or like yeah, spaces. Or, or, or so, journeys, you know. I'm supposed to, um, I was invited to a friend's screening tonight and I've been a bit under the weather. And so, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit reluctant. But but anyway, but I was thinking, oh, I have to just, I'll just stay in watch film at home but I should go I think you know but there's a there are these choices and of course the choice of staying home and just watching red hollywood and movie so much easier in a way than again getting into a car and going we see it as effort but like if you think of it like a journey the possibility for that is much is possibly more transformative I wish it wasn't a choice to be made. I'm, I have a hard time making decisions, as you know. <laughs> I've heard. Are you any? Are you any good? Where's my? Where's are you my any eye? good at making decisions? What is that? Why? Oh, right. really? Well, no. You might as well stop then. <laughs> I should go. I should just ask OK Google what to do, and no, it will speak no. again. <laughs> I don't know, but sometimes though, man, I can watch a film and have a really transformative experience and it's almost like i am i feel so into the film itself and i went through this whole journey on on my inside and internal 
yeah, that it's almost like, oh, this is just as good as leaving the house. Yeah, it's transcendent when you sit in a in a when you know, when you're in a screening with other people and the film is large, oh, larger beautiful. than you. It's really yeah. Now films are all smaller because I know I watch on my iPad, which is just kind of embarrassing. Like it's so minuscule. Sometimes I watch it my phone, and then it's it, that is then. Lilliputian, like it's just very small, tiny people moving about the I find, screen. I find ultra. I find texting. people watching pornography on the train hilarious. Like porn on the small phone on the subway, and they just watch it. I guess they can't even do anything. Oh, they just look they at do, it, and like you don't. It's not often that you see people just like. Yeah, I guess also now it's kind of wintry times. So everyone's wearing the puffy coat. The puffy coat, I guess, is the boon to the subway perverts. <laughs> I've never Some seen that many good. subway masturbations. I've, I've, everybody talks like it happens constantly, but maybe. I mean, I'm paying attention. So, I mean, I feel like they couldn't get it past me if they were trying to do that. But but they do watch. But no, okay. what I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm a detective. I'm a masturbation detective. Um, no, if if they were, if they were, no, the weird part about it is that they're actually just like studiously, passively watching pornography on the train like that's what that's what's disturbing about it because it's like they're not doing if they were like jerking off it'd be awesome in a way like they'd be a truly human experience it'd be horrible and they should probably get arrested or actually go home but like the fact that they're just like whatever i'm just gonna sit here and watch these people fuck like that's even weirder It's like it's hyper. It's almost like it's just natural, as natural as watching yeah, a sitcom. That's you know, where we live now. because we've transcended, we've transcended the right. physicality. It became right. an image, but it's you know you've read probably you've seen, seen all those pieces about uh, people having less and less that's right. sex that's constantly. Right. I think it's the sexual version, and I haven't figured out what it is, but I think it's the sexual version of us watching all these movies and not getting out of our house and like taking the journey to the movie theater. It's the relationship sexual mm. body version of that. It's like that we have the idea of of everything and that makes us want nothing. Yeah. It's also maybe how they just, you know, trick themselves um, into going outside, you know. Maybe yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I leave my house, I will watch a porno <laughs> on the subway. No, it's because they can't stop watching pornos because they have an addiction and they watch it at home Mm -hmm. and they watch watch it for they watch it after. I mean, they do. It's a it's a real thing. Yeah. Now that we can record podcasts, you know, across uh, across the land, you know, and we're so we can be so immaterial in a way. Why people still um, insist on moving to these great places I guess they just have an, an aura about them because you can I mean there is something really nice about you know living in a place that's scaled to your humanity I mean New York and LA are superhuman I think when you have to spend two or three hours commuting a day you know daily it just doesn't seem somehow mm-hmm. normal how, how what's your longest commute you've ever had for a job oh I never I don't you know because I I you are immaterial I, I, I'm immaterial, so nice. I don't need to. I can just go mostly wherever I want to. Right. So I actually avoid it. But every now and then, um, I'll forget because I have I don't experience it very often. And I'll drive to the ocean, and you know it'll take two hours, and I'll be just 
Wait, no, your I'm job so is your job is at the ocean. Oh, this is for a social. No, no, no. If I want to, just, oh, just I see. For, yeah, just, oh, the, just I to see. see the water. <laughs> Go to the Hammer Museum. You know, I live right. on the east side and went to the west side, and it will take a long time. And yeah, it's so shocking. But some people do it every day. There's this. Uh, there's a game about poverty. I forget what it's called, but it's like one of the. You can oh. play it to see how poor you are. And one of the thing, or or you would be like, it's it's about how it's mm-hmm. difficult to get out of poverty when you're in it. And part of poverty is that like you, in order to pay lower rent, you have to have a longer commute, which actually affects your health and your energy. So then it actually oh. costs as much to have a long commute physically as it does to like have lower rent. So there are all of these trade-offs with poverty that make it difficult to exit poverty because because of all of this stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a, that's a, that's a really um, that's a really good way of arranging it. I think there's something really painful also um, about the fact that it's a game. It's always really yeah, yeah. poignant and painful when uh, predicaments are arranged into a game because um, there's an obvious kind of relationship to life. I was going to tell you about a game. Uh, another game. It's called, um, I think, Etazima or Zimoy. It's winter, basically. And um, the game is that you're in this typical Soviet apartment block. Um, and you're inside an apartment and it's just really um, bleak. It's wintertime. And the only thing is you can do is you can sort of move to the living room or the kitchen and you can microwave a breakfast. I'm going to send you a link um, to... To it, and it's the middle of the night, and you're alone in a small Russian apartment in a wow. tenement. We should play both of these games oh. together. <laughs> yeah, we should report. And yeah. and yeah, there's just something really um, interesting about that, about just the narrative that you create. Yeah, through this moving through space. That's kind of how I live. I think that's how a lot of us live, you know, just moving. And I think there's this sort of idea that things can be really different, you know, and that you're going to break the routine, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, connect, connecting that to the consistent, this consistent calm man, you know, I mean, can you, maybe there's such a thing as like the architecture of the object relation. Right. So like mm. your consistent home, like your nest, your consistent home, your consistent comfort. I know this because I just moved, you know, it's like when things are thrown about, when like new people enter the sphere, it's very upsetting. You know, it's like so in a way, like it's boring and kind of depressing also, but it, like we are trying to create comfort and control. So there's always like this fine line between comfort and control. And- there's a tension between that, yeah, between comfort, control, and then this idea of spontaneity. But I think there are also differences in which I think in which we think we're happy. Yeah, you know, true. there's kind of the narrative itself in which we imagine yes. what would make us happy, and then what actually makes right. us happy. There's um, always fantasy and, and longing the- and the ideal. Yeah, yeah, and habituation, I suppose, mm-hmm. as well. Just, oh, yeah. yeah. Hi, Just, what's up? Yeah. What's up? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a, in one of my favorite uh, Buddhist guys, he talks about task positive behavior. Um, so that's that's how mm. I have combated this. And so the theory 
is that like rumination, like base, just base, not like intellectual rumination where you're like considering ideas in a constructed way, which doesn't have to be, isn't psychologically Mm -hmm. bad because it's like a project, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're engaged in it, but like just Mm -hmm. passively ruminating or like scrolling on your phone or whatever, like that, that there was a study that people are more depressed doing that than they are doing anything else, even something they don't want to do. Yeah. So the idea is to do task positive behavior, which is terrible and sounds like hobbies. Um, but it's not because I found hobbies I like, and now I don't think that they're boring, but like, you know, it's the idea of keeping your hands busy, but like with something that you really care about and that you want to get better at. So like I do guitar chords Mm -hmm. and like play, you know, I try to improvise things or like, like that's why I have plants And I think like, that's why grandma's like in your head, like you imagine like what grandmas are like, and they're always happy. It's not because they're like mindless and this kind of sex is shitty. Like, oh, she's a caring person and she's mindlessly doing this stuff. And who knows what's up with grandma is that like grandmas are geniuses of task positive behavior where they're just like knitting and thinking and like processing and socializing, you know, over and over and over again every day instead of like wandering around there. Well, there's so much consumption, right? We're just yes. constantly puzzling through images and news feeds. But, you know, also just as you were describing it and that feeling of depression, which I have, of course, felt. Um, but it's also a strange sinking feeling, which aligns with the kind of scrolling motion mm, that you do. Yeah. You, know, you kind of go down and you really just, it is kind of an, it's sort of an infinite, you know, elevator that just travels downward. I like that. Hell. Yeah. To the core of the earth, but not in a yeah, fun down way. down and like through purgatories. Yeah. Sometimes it's yeah. hell. It's like probably like hour yeah. two of scrolling and comparing. And like, sometimes you like think it's awesome. Like there are these great exhilarations of like a person is doing something that you're like, yes, that's amazing. Or you see something you want to buy and you're like, yeah. yeah. And it, so it zooms up to the top and then you go back down because it's like, oh, that person's better than me. Oh, this sucks. Oh, what am I doing? Oh, da, 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 da. And it's like all the way back down. It's a horrible elevator. It makes me upset. It's but a strange, yeah, a strange elevator. And, but like, at least you're on it, you know, and it's so scary to sometimes n- not be on it and go off and like, yeah. take care of my plants or whatever. Like, it's hard, but I have to do it. <laughs> so are we nearing the ending of our first episode? I think we are. Indeed. We, we have come we have come a long way. We have. Been. And we are changed by the experience. Yes, we are. And it seems it seems that we brought someone along with us this whole way. Do you feel that? It was a Roomba. <laughs> it was a, Roomba. a slow Roomba trailing us. Well, yeah. tune in next week. Um, and if you have any existential <laughs> apps or video games. Um, that you'd like us to review or if you have thoughts on Roomba or are there... Yeah, robots robots that you feel really emotionally connected to. You know, network object in your life. Let us know. All right.